And we start our brand new series today called Fear. We're getting ready for Halloween. And the question I want to start with is, what are you afraid of? Not like Michelle was afraid of that bumper video. Um, but what are you afraid of? Um, I, I, I know that when you see me, you, I look like a really tough, manly guy to you. So might be laughing. But I actually have some fears, things I'm a, I'm a little afraid of. And, and these are kind of silly stuff, um, but I'm going to be honest and open with you. So here's the things I'm scared of. I'm scared of uh, cricket spiders. What are they really called? Sprickets, are they really called sprickets? Or is that just what we call, okay. If you don't know what those are, they are cricket and a spider. And the way that they defend themselves is they jump at you. That's why I don't like them. They attack you. Um, and I basically, I think all of the crickets, are you, are you plugging your ears, Michelle? <laughs> um, I think all the cricket spiders in Sykesville live in that closet, actually. There's a lot in there. I also am not, I didn't think I was afraid of this, but I'm actually kind of afraid of mice, I've learned. Uh, I didn't think I was, and then uh, we found a mouse, we saw a mouse crawl in our living room, so my wife and I were trying to find it, and I was like, I think it's right back here, and I made some noise, and it crawled, and I, and I was the first one to jump up onto the couch. So I was like, I think I might be a scared of mice. But the most irrational thing that I'm scared of, for sure, and I've talked about this before if you've been here, um, are clowns. Do not like clowns, not a fan of them, they creep me out, make me nervous. If I go to a haunted house, like, I just don't. I won't have like a panic attack around a clown, but I can never just settle in. I'm, I can, I'm just always a little uneasy whenever a clown is around. And uh, this, this past, these past couple weeks, I've been trying to dig a little deeper on why I'm afraid of clowns. And here's what, I'm not a therapist, so I don't really know, um, but here's what I think, here's how I think my fear of clowns started. When I was a very, very little kid. I watched home videos of me as a baby, and they were showing my room, and they got to one wall, and there was the creepiest clown painted on my wall that my grandmother did which was very nice of her, but I think just as a kid, I just stared at that all day. And then um, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was a movie called uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He has no Pee-wee, R.I.P. Um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, and if you've ever seen the movie, there's a nightmare scene with the bikes, some of you guys know what I'm talking about, and it's all these like creepy clowns that are in hell, like putting the bike in, it was nuts. So I remember seeing it as a kid, like this is terrifying. And then the first scary movie I ever watched um, around Halloween time was a movie called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And I watched it again recently, it's terrible. It's a terrible movie. They shoot you with a um, cotton candy gun and you wrap it in a cotton candy thing. And that it's, but anyways, and as a fourth grader when I saw it, I was terrified of it. Um, now I've never had a bad personal experience with clowns, but these early memories of, of me with clowns I, have made a lifelong uneasiness for me and clowns. And you may have something like irrational or silly that you are afraid of too. Or maybe you don't, not everyone does. But here ha here's what I have learned over, over the past couple months is that um, all of us have some kind of fear deep in us that affects how we look at life, how we look at ourselves, and how we look at God. What is fear? I mean, the definition of fear is fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. That's the definition. And sometimes fear is a good thing because fear can keep you safe if you do not have any fear about anything, then you're actually in danger. You should be afraid of cars crossing the street a little bit. If not, you're going to get hit by a car, right? It's a good thing to have fear in those situations. Fear can help you actually stay focused. Adrenaline will kick in and give you a fear, gives you a sense of kind of really focusing in on what you have to accomplish because of fear. Um, fear can help you know what's really important in life. Because later is never guaranteed, because it's never guaranteed, fear can lead you to appreciate what you have today because you're afraid of losing it tomorrow. And fear, when handled appropriately, can help you discover who you really are. Now, I've been, like I said, I've been learning a lot about uh, fear recently. I've met with 
a bunch of different people talking about some stuff um, about fear and about identity and things like that. And one of the people I, that I've talked about, that I've talked to that um, actually spoke at our men's group and that a lot of this that we're talking about today is from is uh, Jeff who's sitting right there. Uh, Jeff is an army commander, a foreign diplomat, and has an MDiv in discipleship and church planning. So I know I look manly, but that's actually manly. Okay, so, uh, but here is what I've been learning. So here's what I've been learning over the past couple of months. The simplest terms, here's what fear is. Here's going to be the definition of fear throughout this entire series. Fear is simply the response to death. Fear is the response to death. The death of your relationships, the death of your finances, the death of your reputation, the death of your health, the death of your faith. And fear, again, it isn't always a bad thing. If I have a fear that my marriage, um, that of my marriage ending, that could actually lead me to be the healthiest version of myself so that way my marriage does well. However, if you let fear dominate you, if you let it control you, that same fear of, of a marriage ending could actually ruin my marriage. If, if I was so afraid of my marriage ending that Erica could never hang out with anybody else because if, if, if she does and maybe something else happens and it makes a split, then that, that's not good. It, we, we can't ever fight if I have a fear of marriage ending because if, if we fight, that could lead us to a really bad fight. That could lead to divorce, so we can't ever do that. So we need to do whatever we can to be as happy as we possibly can, even if it's fake happiness. That's what we have to do because I, I'm too afraid of this marriage ending. Our kids need to be perfect, and if they're not perfect, then that could really affect our marriage. And I have to push any feelings that I have of, of being annoyed or frustrated with my wife, and she has to push any feelings that she has of being annoyed or frustrated because if we act out on those feelings, that could actually destroy our marriage because I'm afraid of our marriage dying. You see, when fear is in the passenger seat, it's a, it's a useful tool. But when fear is driving, it can actually lead us to the death that we're trying to avoid. It's no wonder that the, one of the most common phrases in the Bible is fear not. And you maybe have heard this, that um, fear is written in the Bible 365 times, fear not in some kind of capacity, which is awesome. It's amazing. Also not true. That's not, that's not a real thing. Looked it up, saw all these articles. They're like, yeah, it says it. I was like, that seems like a lot. And then a little more research, they were like, no, that's not what it says. But it does say fear not a lot. Let me just read to you a bunch of them. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Matthew 10, 31, fear not, therefore you are more valuable than many sparrows. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hebrews 13, 6, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Who, what can man do to me? 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I can, I can read you multiple more verses that talk about not fearing. Fear is a response to death, and God tells us to not fear. The first time we really see fear enter into the picture is from the very beginning in Genesis. Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know the story, you probably do, whether you're a church person or not, that we have Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve at this point are living in, in perfection. They are, they are living in perfect community, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with, their, with what's around them, and they are living to their fullest potential. But there's one thing they're told not to do. There's one thing. It says, hey, there's one tree. Don't eat from that one tree. You can do anything else, but there's this one tree not to eat from. And as a pastor, I've gotten this question a lot of like, well, then why would God put the tree there? Like, if, if you're not, you can't eat from that one tree, why would God put it there? And here's why. Um, if there's no tree there to disobey, then the only thing we can do is love God because there's no other option. If, if the only way we can freely give love is by having the choice not to love, 
I know Erica loves me, not because she just has no choice to love me, but she can choose not to, yet she chooses to love me, even when I'm very hard to love, which is a lot. If we had no choice but to obey God, then we're robots. But God wanted an active relationship with us, so there has to be a way for us not to love him. Love, if it's not freely given, is not actually love. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there's this one tree they're told not to eat from, and that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this, now the verses in Genesis don't directly tell us that the serpent is Satan, but if you read the rest of the Bible, um, it will tell you that. Ezekiel 28, Job 26, Isaiah 51, and Revelation 12, just to name a few, tell us that this is the enemy, Satan, um, talking to Adam and Eve. And the enemy, it says, is crafty. The enemy knows that what he needs to do to pull you away from the perfect union, the community of God, is, is just ask one little question. And what was the question he asked? Did God really say that? Like you, you, sh- you, sure you're, you sure you heard that right? Did God really say? His first attack is just a little bit of doubt. That's what his first attack is. The enemy just tries to undermine God's word, and he gets her. Satan is just basically saying this. Is, are you sure that's what God said? Just this one tree? You're, you can't eat from that. Why, why wouldn't you be able to eat from that one tree? What, are you sure that's what God said? The first thing he does is he, is he challenges and puts doubt in God's word. What kind of God would say that? What he's, that's what Eve's starting to think. What kind of God would give you limits that you, that are for things you can and cannot do? What kind of God would hold out on you like this? Did he really say that? This is how Eve responds. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve responds correctly. It's the correct response that, that is what that is what God said. But this small, simple question allows Eve to start to believe in a lie about God. Just putting in a little bit of doubt. That's all it's really doing at this point. See, our mind is fascinating. Our mind can be in dialogue with our conscious mind and our subconscious mind at the same time. Let me give you an example of that. When I preach, I know what I'm saying, and I can say what I need to say, and I know where I'm at in my points. I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. I can, that's my conscious mind. But my subconscious mind, I see everything that's happening. So if a team member comes down to get a parent, I see it. If, if some kids are running in the back, which is more than fine, but if that happens, I see it. If you look engaged, I see it. If you look bored, I see it. If you fall asleep, I always see it, okay? I, I notice when you are discussing something together. Sometimes I'll say something, um, and then I'll see my wife start to discuss something, and, like, they're laughing at me, and I'm like, oh, I said something wrong. And then afterwards, she'll be like, hey, you said that word completely wrong. One time I tried to say um, calamity, and I said... Uh, I can't remember what I said, but I said something. So I, I, I see all that. So while I'm preaching, I still see all of that. Conscious mind's working at the same time as my subconscious mind. Even her conscious mind is giving the correct answer. But we know, if you know the whole story, that this false belief about who God is and who she is with God is starting to begin. One simple question. Did God really say that leads to thoughts like, can I really trust God? What is God holding out from me? I'm not good enough the way I am right now. I, I need more. God is preventing me from being the person that I deserve to be. And then look what the enemy does next. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
you're not going to die. First is a little bit of doubt. And then, hey, it's not going to happen. You won't die. What is this? That's a lie. She actually will die now. That this will take her to the process of dying. If, if God lies to her, then, then that means God cannot be good. That's Satan's direct challenge. His direct challenge is he tries to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Because if God lies to her, then God cannot be good. And his direct challenge is that sin must not be that bad. It's not that bad. If the fruit is something good for her, why doesn't God want her to have it? You should have it. It won't lead you to death. It won't be that big a deal. That's another lie the enemy is doing. Satan wants us to see sin as something good and God as something bad so that we can start to believe the lie and we build our identity on that. His main lie to us is, hey, sin's not that bad and God's not that good. Because of this first question that led Eve to doubt, because of that first question, it made the lie more believable. Because Eve believed something false about herself and about God, that God isn't good and she deserves a little more, she falls for the lie that the enemy gives her. Here's what, how the story goes in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So because of fear, what does it lead Adam and Eve to do? They cover themselves up, and they hide. Do you remember the first time that um, you did something really wrong and how you responded to that? First time, I've told this before, but the first time I, I really remember doing something wrong is when I peed my pants in first grade. Remember it? And I just remember seeing, like, it was just a whole, was a whole story to it. But remember, I peed my pants, and my first response when I peed my pants was, oh, no, they're going to find out, and I got on my hands and knees and tried to sweep it under the desk. That's what I did. What was I doing? I was trying to hide what I did wrong from everyone, and my plan the day was just to sit there all day until I went home. Like, that was my plan, because I don't want anyone to know that I was a kid who peed his pants, and I, I basically tried to sweep it under the rug, what I was doing. What was that? I was ashamed of who I was, and I felt guilty about what I did, because that's what fear does. Fear leads to guilt and shame. Adam and Eve's fear leads them to cover up, because they're exposed, they're guilty, they're guilty of their crime, and run and hide because of the shame from what they've done. See, guilt is about what I've done. I feel guilty about what I did, but shame is about who I am. I felt guilty because I peed my pants in first grade. I felt shame because I was a kid who peed his pants in first grade. Adam and Eve sinned. They are now separated. That perfect union they had with God is now gone. The perfect union they had with each other is gone. The perfect union they had with creation, gone. And the perfect union they had with themselves is all gone. All because they started to believe a doubt, and they eventually believed a lie. But that sin, the sin that, of, of, that they did was not eating the apple, really. Yeah, that was the action that produced from it, but it's what came before that. Because do you think God really cares about Eve's diet of the apple? It's not about that. It's about Adam and Eve ate from the tree they weren't supposed to, and they showed that they believed that God was holding out of them. They had a false belief inside of them about who they were and who God is. So the action just proved what they believed. Their action led them to fear, which leads to guilt and shame. Believing a lie always produces fear. That's what happens. Adam and Eve were walking in perfect union with God, in perfect union with creation and with each other and with themselves. And they threw it all away, all because of a lie that they believed about God and themselves. 
a lie that produced fear, which eventually brought guilt and shame. And it starts with one simple question of God's word. Did he really say that? One little question of challenging the word of God in your life. Who God says you are and who God designed you to be. And that sets up this belief of a lie. And then once that, that belief is there, that belief of that lie is there, that's when fear starts to take over and starts to begin to build your identity. And you build your identity on this lie that only produces fear. This week I read an article titled, uh, Fear, Your Brain's Pathways and Mental Health. And this article explained that, that just recently, just like five, six years ago, they, they recently discovered some key neural pathways between the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus are regions deep in our brain that, know, that have some relation to the way our mind responds to emotions like fear. Here's a quote uh, I wrote it down that, that they said in this article. People are motivated to remember fearful events because this information is useful for daily life. Yet overinterpretation of fear may lead to anxiety and other mental disorders. Deep brain electrodes capture neurons firing millisecond by millisecond, revealing in real time how the brain attends to fearful stimuli. Neurons in the amygdala fired 120 milliseconds earlier than the hippocampus. It's truly remarkable that we can measure the brain dynamics in such precision. So here's why this is important. We've talked about neuropathways before, but neuropathways in your brain, the more you think of them, the more likely you're gonna think of them again. Your brain wants to operate as efficiently as it possibly can, so the more you think of something, the more it's going to happen again. Think of you walking a path in the grass. The more you walk in the same path, you're eventually gonna be able to see something in your grass, right? The more you walk there, the more you're gonna see it, the worse it's going to get. But if you stop walking on that, eventually the grass will grow back and it'll be fine, right? But if you walk on a path long enough and you eventually kill all the grass, eventually there's nothing left, you can't just stop walking and it's just going to grow back. It's not going to work that way. You actually now have to replant new seed to grow that grass back. When our neural pathways, for a lot of us, we have these thoughts we've had since we were kids, constantly running back and forth in our mind. And we think, oh, well, let's give it some time and it'll eventually go away. And it doesn't go away because time does not fix it. The only thing that fixes false is truth. So when you believe a lie about yourself, you start to believe that lie, and that lie normally comes when you're, when you're very, very young. It produces fear, that lie that produces fear. We tend to go one of two ways when we start to have that fear. One of two, and I want you guys to think about which one of two it is for you. Either self-protection or self-promotion. We all tend to go to one of the two, self-protection or self-promotion. Promotion. Here's the difference. Self-protection is doing whatever you can to keep yourself safe. Do whatever you can to prevent yourself from ever getting hurt again. You seek comfort. You, you fear having any burden or any responsibility because you, you, you're scared of what might happen with that. You try to hide as much as you can because you never want to get exposed. You're, you want to never want to expose yourself because that could only actually hurt you. I'll give you an example. Sarah in, in school loves art. She loves art, and as a kid, she does art. She draws all the time. She's pretty good at it, too. And then one day in school, someone tells her, man, that's a, terrible, that's a terrible drawing. You're bad at this. And that enters into her mind. And all of a sudden now, she's afraid to draw. She's afraid to have any, do anything with art, even though she's good at it because one person told her that it wasn't good. Now she hates art class. She never does it at home. She had a gift of art, but this lie that she now believes is entered into her mind. So now to protect herself, she stops doing art. That's self-protection. Then there's self-promotion. This is the opposite. It's doing whatever you can to make sure that you are noticed. It's, you crave significance instead of comfort. You fear irrelevancy. You're constantly putting yourself out there, and you can only feel valued and loved when other people recognize you. I'll give you another example. Let's say uh, there's a guy named Fred. Never felt good enough. He was never the cool one. 
He was never the one all the girls liked. He was never the best athlete. Um, he was never anything that special. And he always felt like I wasn't good enough. Until one day, this Fred guy does something that gives him attention. He gets a taste of praise and compliments, and he likes it. So the rest of his life, he does whatever he can to get more praise and more compliments to promote himself because that makes the lie feel better. When we believe a lie about ourselves, it produces fear, it produces guilt, and it produces shame. And we tend to go one of two directions. We're going to protect ourselves. We, we protect ourselves. We never want to get hurt again. We want to be careful because of this fear we have. We need to promote ourselves. We go on the attack because of this fear. What did Adam and Eve do? They're self-protective. They literally hide from God. So what do we do with the fear that we have because of that lie that we believe? Because all of us deep down have a lie that we have trouble not believing about ourselves. What do we do with that? All of us have to start to live, all of us start to live in that fear if we do not work on that fear. It's like that path that there's no grass there and we can't figure out why that fear is still there. It's because of a lie that we believe for such a long time. Well, what does God do with Adam and Eve? See what he does in verse 9. It says, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? God asked two questions that I think are important for us. Where are you? Where are you, Adam and Eve? Where are you? Does God really not know where Adam and Eve are? Does God really like, I'm, I, they, they disappeared, I don't know. Where are you? No, he knows exactly where they are. You know when you ask your kid a question um, and you know the answer, you just want to see how they respond to the question? That's what God's doing here. Where are you? Where, where, where did you go? Where are you? It shows Adam and Eve that they have gone from perfect union with God to separated. Where are you? They have gone from God-reliant to self-reliant. It was God's way to help them realize where they currently are. They are now separated. Where are you? And the second question he asks, who told you that? Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were exposed? Who told you that? God knows the answer to this too. He's not oblivious to it. But he wants Adam and Eve to look deeper in order to have a better understanding of what has happened, of what they have believed. So I want to ask you the same question as you get ready to close. Where are you, and who told you that? Where are you? What is the lie that you keep believing about yourself right now that is producing fear and guilt and shame in your life? Where is that lie? That lie probably started a long time ago. You've had trouble trying to figure it out and trying to work through it, and you think over time it's eventually going to go away, the grass will grow back, but it's simply not growing back. Where are you? What is that thing that you have been working on, that you have been struggling with, what is it? Because a lot of us, we never even look deep enough. We just try to mask it with self-protection or self-promotion to mask what it is. But really, if we look deeper to figure out where did that lie come from, what is it that I need to work on? Where are you? And then who told you that? Whatever that lie is, where does that come from? Where did it begin? And does that lie match what God says about you? The, the story I told early, earlier about uh, Fred, that's my story. That's me. I remember as a kid, I, the first time I remember really feeling like th that, that, that praise that I really wanted. Um, I was always a shy kid, always hard, like had, had friends, but I was very shy. Um, didn't, got nervous around people. I was never that loud at school. 
uh, never the best athlete. Girls didn't necessarily like me. I remember that in fifth grade. And I remember the first time uh, a teacher asked, hey, does anybody want to, um, to volunteer to be the wolf in this play we're going to do really quick of the three bears and the wolf? And for some reason, even though I was a shy kid, I hated being in front of people, I raised my hand for some reason. And she called me right away. And I got up, and I remember doing, acting it all out and, and being the wolf. And um, everyone was cracking up at what I was doing. Like, everyone really liked it. I remember, like, everyone was like, oh, it's so funny. And afterwards, they're like, you did such a good job. They were sh- so shocked. My teacher came up to me and said, I can't believe you did that. You did such a good job. Our, at our parent-teacher conference, I remember sitting at a parent-teacher conference, and the teacher saying to my parents, man, I, he never stepped, he never raised his hand. He never volunteered for anything. And he volunteered, and I saw him, and I said, oh, I'm calling him right away. And he did such a good job. Now, the first time I was like, oh, I like this. I like this praise that I'm getting right now. I like the attention I'm getting right now. But I, as I got older, I, I, I had trouble finding it in other places. I didn't find it in school. I didn't find it in sports. One the best at school. One the best in sports. But there's one place I found it a lot. Church. Oh, I got a lot of praise at church. I played drums, and we, worship teams always need drummers, right? So I, I remember I got praise for that. And then I could actually talk a little bit in front of people, and I got praise for that. And I, would, I was a small group leader. I got, I got praise for that. And then I started getting ready to work at a church plant, I got praised for that. And then I started getting ready to plant a church, I got praised for that, and it felt good. So self-promotion. But deep down, it was all with that one lie that I kept telling myself. Not good enough. And one day you're going to find out. So I need to promote myself so you don't find out that I'm actually not good enough for this job. That's what I thought. Where are you who told you that? Maybe for you, you feel like you're not good enough. That's the lie you've been telling yourself. Not good enough. Maybe you look at the truth that, the, that God tells us that we are made perfect in Christ. Hebrews 10, 14. For by the one offering, offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. You might feel like I'm not good enough where God says you are made perfect through my sacrifice. Maybe you feel like the lie you're telling yourself is I'm just a failure. It's who I am. Maybe the truth you need to tell yourself is, no, I'm forgiven. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by grace. Maybe the lie you tell yourself is, I can't do it. I can't do the thing he's calling me to do. I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I cannot do that. Maybe the truth you need to tell yourself is, through God, I can do all things. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe the lie you're telling yourself is, I am controlled by my sin. That thing I keep trying to get past, that thing I'm trying to I'm trying to work through, I can't get rid of it. I'm controlled by it. But maybe the truth you need to tell yourself is, no, I'm dead to sin. Romans 6, 11, so you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Maybe the, the lie you believe is, I'm unlovable. I know what I've done. I'm simply unlovable. For God so loved the world you who gave his only son. Maybe the truth you need to tell yourself is, no, I am worthy to be loved, and I am loved. The good news of the gospel is that you do not need to live in fear anymore. If fear is the response that we have of something possibly dying, and we are controlled by fear because of something potentially dying, the gospel is that God sent his son to die for us, to conquer death and to conquer the consequences of death. That we no longer need to live in fear because Jesus conquered death on a cross. That we believe because of our sin, 
We separated ourselves from a perfect God. That union that we saw in Adam and Eve that separated them when they, when, when they sinned, we have that same separation, that we can no longer be in union with him. But God saw our biggest need, sent his son to die on a cross for us, and three days later came back to life to prove that the death was paid for, so that you no longer need to live in fear. Who told you that? Where are you? As we do this series, we're going to be talking about different ways we respond because of fear. We're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about what we do with our faith because of our fear. But if we don't understand this first concept, it's going to be very hard to build on. That somewhere deep inside of us, whatever that fear is that we all have, we need to understand it, figure out where it came from, and not just hope over time the grass grows back, but plant new seeds. Start telling ourselves the truth of God. Or, during your quiet time, allow God to tell you the truth that you need to hear. So as we get ready to close, the worship team comes on up. I want to give you just a moment where the worship team plays. Can you and God to pray about whatever that fear is? Whatever that lie is that brought about that fear. Where did that come from? Who told you that? Where are you? I want you to wrestle with those questions. And then I want you to take this time to ask God to give you the truth. So you don't believe that lie anymore. You actually live in the truth that will set you free from the bondage of our chains, from the bondage of death. Take this time and we'll worship together.